Well, we are continuing with our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount today uh, by looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Uh, This is a very important passage, and it is uh, foundational to much of the rest of what we're going to discover in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, To this point in chapter 5, we have learned about the kind of character that a Christian should have, Uh, the kind of life that marks a Christian as blessed. That was from our series a few months ago in the Beatitudes. And then last week we heard from the words of Jesus how Christians are to impact the world as salt impacts meat and as light impacts darkness. Uh, Basically, uh, what we took from that is that we are to be different than the unbelieving world around us and we are to make a difference in that world by the fact that we are different. And so today we pick up with verses 17 through 20. Here's what we read, and again, these are the words of Jesus. It's important to keep that in mind throughout the Sermon on the Mount. These are the words of Jesus, and here's what we find. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear... Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven." For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, it didn't take long for him to begin to create controversy and to create some concern among the religious leaders of his day. They witnessed and they heard of him teaching in a very authoritative way that they were not really used to. Uh, And they witnessed and heard him teaching things that contradicted the way that they, the religious leaders, taught. The authority upon which the religious leaders claimed to base their teaching is what was called then and what we still refer to today as the law. But Jesus taught as though he was the authority upon which the teachings were based. And so this created controversy and it created great concern on the part of the religious leaders. And so uh, Jesus seems to be addressing uh, that concern uh, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, um, he had probably heard rumblings of this, but of course he he just knew because he knew things. And so he is addressing that concern Uh, Here in verse 17, he says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Some of the religious leaders of the day heard the things that Jesus taught, and they came to the conclusion that the implications of what he was saying was that he wanted to abolish the law. In the day that we live in, many Christians have assessed Jesus the same way or at least in a similar way, as what those religious leaders did. And they claim, not that Jesus wants to abolish the law, but that Jesus did abolish the law. That Jesus did 
away with the law. And so in verse 17, Jesus, I believe, is answering both his contemporary critics of that day and those who today interpret his words as an abolishment of the law. And here's what he says, I did not come to abolish the law. It's helpful for us, I think, before we go further, to understand what is meant by the law. The, the phrase has a number of meanings, and which meaning applies depends on the time and the place of its use. One of the meanings of this phrase, the law, is simply the Ten Commandments. The law, the Ten Commandments. Another meaning of the law is the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, which the Jews considered to be like the epitome of the law, the, the, the supreme law, and, and viewed uh, the Pentateuch as the most important part of the Bible. The third meaning of the law is the law and the prophets, which is a way that the Jewish people referred to the entirety of Scripture, what we would call the Old Testament. And then the fourth meaning of the law is what is called the oral or scribal law. Or you may have heard it referred to as the law of the scribes and Pharisees. And I think a little explanation of the scribal law is in order, and William Barclay helps us with this. He says that the law uh, presented in the Ten Commandments, the first five books of the Bible, and even the entirety of the Old Testament dealt much more with broad principles than it did with highly detailed rules. Now, we may initially object to that because we know about the book of Leviticus, but if you really look at this objectively, what he's saying here is accurate. The Jews had come to believe that if something was not in the law explicitly, then it must be in the law implicitly. And so they came to believe that they could deduce a rule and a regulation for every possible situation in life. And it was these men who were known as the scribes who were tasked with taking the law of God and creating these rules and regulations to govern the law of God. So what basically happened is they created lots and lots of rules and regulations to explain to the people how they should interpret and apply the law of God. The basic idea here might be similar to what we see, uh, for example, in our tax code uh, here in the United States, or really with any law uh, that, that we uh, live under. Somewhere there is an actual statute that is fairly simple and fairly straightforward. So much so that an average person can, can read the original statute and believe that they understand it, but not so fast. Because that simple statute, no doubt, has hundreds or even thousands of pages of documents explaining how the statute is to be understood and applied, which renders many of us incapable of doing our own taxes, or even if we were capable, lacking the confidence to do so. The scribes took the law and then they piled all kinds of additional stuff on top of it 
which wasn't actually the law, but it came to be regarded as the law. And then the focus of the scribes and Pharisees, and by extension the Jewish people, came to be keeping all of these rules and regulations that weren't actually the law of God, but were treated as though they were the law of God. A case in point, the Sabbath. Here's what's said about the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments. And actually, there's a little more said about the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments than some of the other uh, commandments, but it says, uh, I'm paraphrasing, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Work for six days, rest on the seventh, don't work on the Sabbath. That's essentially what the Ten Commandments say about the Sabbath. But that was not clear enough for the scribes. And so they wrestled with questions like, well, what is work? If we can't work, what is work? And so they developed many rules and regulations to explain what constituted work. And so a simple command to not work on the Sabbath ended up with all kinds of things being classified as work that any normal thinking person would not have considered to be work at all. And according to Barclay, I'm taking his word on this, but here are some of the actual things that they came up with. Okay? So one of their concerns was how much could a person carry on the Sabbath? Now, we wouldn't necessarily even think of carrying something as constituting work. But they were very concerned with how much a person could carry on the Sabbath. So according to Barclay, here are actual rules and regulations that the scribes came up with. A person could carry food equal in weight to a dried fig. You could carry enough wine for mixing in a goblet. Here was one of my favorite ones. You could carry enough milk for one swallow. Honey enough to put on a wound, water enough to moisten an eye. These are funny. You people need to wake up. What, what? <laughs> Ink enough. <laughs> you said it's appalling. <laughs> Can't laugh because you're so appalled. <laughs> Ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet. You could carry those items without being considered to have worked. But milk for two swallows, now you've worked. And you have broken God's law. Broken the Sabbath. So at first glance, this appears to make the law much more difficult to follow than the original command. And in a sense, I guess it does. But it also makes it much more superficial. Amen. These rules and regulations, if we had to follow them today, would be a nuisance. They would be tedious. They would be annoying. But they aren't actually that difficult. Jesus said that those who love Him keep His commands. Those who love God keep His commands. 
the rules and regulations that the scribes added to the law of God actually served to enable people who did not love God at all to keep the rules and then pat themselves on the back for their great love and obedience to God. So the scribes both made the law more tedious, but also dumbed it down and created something that could be done without any love for God, something that could be done without being yielded to God at all, something that could be done without really any concern for God at all. And so at the time of Jesus, the law was most commonly understood to refer to the oral and scribal law, to this detailed list of rules and regulations that weren't actually in the Ten Commandments, the Pentateuch, or the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament. And so when we talk about Jesus breaking the law, it is this law that Jesus was known to break. It was this law that Jesus was known to ignore. It was this law that had the religious leaders of the day so concerned about Jesus so upset about Jesus, accusing Jesus of wanting to do away with and abolish the law. And so when people then or now claim that Jesus broke the law, they are only correct if the understanding of the law that he broke is the oral and scribal law. You see, Jesus cares, cared, cares very much about the law of God. The Ten Commandments, the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, the entirety of his word as revealed in the Bible, including the New Testament. So to people concerned that he wanted to abolish the law, Jesus said, don't think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he goes on and says that until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest part of the law will disappear. And he feels so strongly about the law that he says that anyone who sets aside the least of the commands of God and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven and that anyone who practices the commands and teaches others to do so will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the relationship that Jesus had with the law wasn't to abolish it or to do away with it, but it was to fulfill it. And there are two major ways that Jesus fulfilled the law. The first way Jesus fulfilled the law was by living in perfect obedience to it. He was without sin. Never sinned, not a single time, never violated the law of God, lived in perfect obedience to God's righteous demands. He fulfilled the law by living in perfect obedience to it. We don't fulfill the law because we fall short of its righteous demands, but Jesus fulfilled it because he kept all of the righteous demands of the law, all of the commandments of God. Not of the scribes, not of the Pharisees, but of God. The second way that Jesus fulfills the law is by clarifying it and completing the meaning of the law or or filling in our missing understanding about the law. Jesus is God incarnate. That means Jesus is the lawgiver. 
Which is why he could speak with authority, uh, with an authority that the scribes and Pharisees could not speak with. And as the lawgiver, Jesus is able to clear up our misunderstandings about the law. He's able to clarify it for us. And Jesus did this throughout his earthly ministry, and he did it very significantly throughout the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, for the next few weeks, the topics that we're going to come to uh, in this series are examples of Jesus going about clarifying and filling in, completing the meaning of the law. For example, next week's reading is going to be Jesus teaching about murder. And we'll read this next week from Jesus. You've heard that it was said to the people, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And with most of the clarifications that Jesus provides, we'll find that he does a couple of things. He simplifies the complexity of the law. He makes it much less tedious, but he reveals to us that it's actually more demanding than we originally thought it was. Because what Jesus clarifies for us is that the law isn't really about keeping rules and regulations. It's not just about external conformity. The law is all about what's happening in our heart. In our heart. What Jesus does is he clarifies and completes the meaning of the law is to help us understand the real intention of the law. And it is not rule keeping. Instead, the intention of the law is love for God and our fellow man. And and William Barclay frames this a, a little differently, but it's in a way that I think helps us understand how that love is to be expressed. He says that Christ reveals the intent of the law is to be reverence for God and respect for our fellow men. We revere God, we honor God for who He is, and we respect people for who they are created in God's image. So knowing what is meant by the law in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, and knowing what Jesus' relationship with the law was and is, we come to a very important consideration. What is our relationship with the law? How does the law impact us? How are we meant to understand the law? First, we need to understand the purposes that the law has for us even in 2019. The first purpose of the law for us is that it reveals God's will for humanity. It is God's revelation of how mankind is intended to live. The scribal law did not reveal how mankind was intended by God to live. As I said earlier, that was at the same time horribly tedious and burdensome while also dumbing down the law and making it something you could do without any concern for God. But the law, the Ten Commandments, the Pentateuch, the Prophets, at least as it relates to the moral precepts contained within them, absolutely did and does reveal how God wants humanity to live. This has not changed. Don't steal. 
Don't kill. Don't covet. Don't commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. Don't serve idols. These things and the rest of the commands are absolutely God's will for humanity in 2019 just as much as when the law was first given. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law. Christians sometimes mistakenly believe that everything in the Old Testament doesn't have anything to do with us because we're now under the new covenant. We're under the New Testament. But the moral expectations that God has for His people, really for all people, have never changed. Ever. And they never will. If anyone ever tells you that the Ten Commandments do not apply to us today, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. We had, I I won't name names, but we had a a very famous nationally known, internationally known pastor that has really gotten a lot of attention this week because he came out and said the Ten Commandments have nothing for us today. That they, they do not apply to us today. The Ten Commandments absolutely still reveal how God wants people to live. And here's probably the most important reason that God wants people to continue to live according to the moral law is because it is what is best for us. It's what's best for us. Why would you tell people the Ten Commandments have nothing to do with them? It is given because of what's best for us. It's given for our good. So when you hear those voices, no, no matter how much they, they seem to be a credible voice, when they say things like this, you have to say, nah, I can't listen to that. I'm not accepting that. I'm rejecting that. Of course, most of us don't do a very good job living according to God's moral law. <laughs> Certainly apart from Christ, we don't. And even when we come to faith in Jesus, we never attain moral perfection in this life. We should be growing. We should be becoming more like Jesus, be becoming more like Jesus, but we never fully arrive. And so this leads us to the second purpose of the law for us, even in 2019, it is this, to lead us to the recognition of our need of Christ and His salvation. This is the purpose of the law. God reveals to us in His Word how He wants us to live. Says that if we do not live that way, we place ourselves under condemnation and we place ourselves in the position of facing His judgment. And then those realities, along with the realization that we don't live the way that God requires, are meant to lead us to the place where we understand that we cannot merit anything with God on our own. It's meant to to help us, to cause us to become receptive to God's gracious offer to accept us. 
even though by our own actions we have rendered ourselves completely unacceptable to him. And God's gracious offer, the way that he graciously offers to accept us is Jesus, who fulfilled the law that we can't fulfill, who satisfied God's righteous demands, who fulfilled the requirement of the law on our behalf, and who offers us the opportunity to be right with God on account of him, based on his account of righteousness with God. And so the purpose of the law is to tell us how God wants us to live, and then the purpose of the law is meant to reveal to us our need of a Savior. Lead us to the place of willingness to receive Jesus and allow Him to make us right with God instead of continuing the futile effort of trying to justify ourselves before God. So two great purposes of the law, still applicable for us today, reveal how we're supposed to live, lead us to the recognition of our need of a Savior. And then Jesus says something very interesting in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So I want you to note this. I mean, this is, this is important stuff, Jesus is saying. He's saying if you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven, which you can read that to say if you want to be saved and be part of God's kingdom, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. The Pharisees were a law-abiding people. They were a law-loving people. They meticulously kept the oral scribal law. But Jesus says that only people whose righteousness exceeds that of them will enter the kingdom of heaven. How can our righteousness exceed that of some of the most meticulous law-abiding people in human history? Here's how. The righteousness of the Pharisees was entirely about external conformity to rules and regulations. Their law abiding had very little to do with God. They were exposed by Jesus as loving their traditions, their rules and regulations, more than they loved God. And so what they counted as righteousness really wasn't righteousness at all. It was simply conformity to rules that God had not even asked them to make or to live by. Conformity to rules that can be obeyed without any heart commitment to God. The essence of the law as God had given it was not a matter of conforming to rules. It was about the mind, the thoughts, the motives. It was about the heart which is what we're going to see over and over and over in the next few weeks of this series. And so the way that our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and pleases God is when it advances past mere conformity to rules and becomes an inward righteousness of the mind and motives where our obedience to God flows out of a heart that is truly surrendered to God. And thankfully, we're not left to ourselves to get our heart in that condition. 
The same God who tells us that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees graciously works in our lives to bring about what he requires. In Jeremiah 31, 33, God said this, I will put my law in their minds and I'll write it on, uh, in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So God wants His law to penetrate our hearts, to be a matter of the heart, to capture our hearts. He doesn't leave it to us to figure that out. He says, I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write my law in their hearts. Great. But how's He going to do that? Ezekiel 36, 27, we find the answer to that. God says, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. So God is going to get his law in our hearts and he's going to do it by placing his spirit in us. Again, we're not left to ourselves. What God requires, God provides. And what God requires, God will bring about. So he's going to get his law in us. He's going to empower us to be people who don't just offer external conformity, but who actually have an inward righteousness of the heart. He's going to do it by putting his spirit in us. And then we find in John 3, 3 that Jesus said this, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. The way a person's righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees the way that God places His law in our hearts so that our righteousness is a matter of the mind and motives instead of just external conformity, the way that God indwells us by His Spirit is through the new birth. It is when we are born again. Born again. It's when we come to understand our need of God to the point that we actually turn to God actually turn to Christ for help. We, we tell you about this when you go through our membership classes. We're born again when we admit that God has not been the Lord of our lives like He rightfully deserves to be. And we ask Him to forgive us for our rebellion, to forgive us of our sins. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from every wrong. We're born again when we believe that Jesus died to pay for our sins and that he rose again and is alive today. Acts 4.12 says, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name, Jesus, by which we must be saved. We're born again when we ask Jesus Christ to come into our lives and to be our Savior and Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. When you've admitted, when you've believed, when you've asked, then by faith you can confidently receive God's free gift of salvation. John 1, 12 and 13 says, To all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, children not born of natural descent nor of human decision 
or the will of man, but born of God. All who receive him are born of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. When a person admits, believes, asks, and receives, when they say yes to Jesus, ask Him to be their Savior and Lord, He puts His Spirit in them, just like He promised in Ezekiel 36, 27. And because His Spirit is then in us, He begins to write His law on our hearts. So that we don't live life just conforming to a bunch of rules and regulations that aren't actually what God desires from us, but instead we obey the Spirit of the commands of God from a willing mind, with willing motives. We do so because we have been changed. We do so because we have been reborn. We have been born again. So as I was preparing this message, I felt that we still had a question at this point. How do I know if I've truly been indwelled by God's Spirit? How do I know that? Of course, there's so much that can be said about that that goes beyond what I have the time to talk about today, but there were four things that I felt impressed to share with you today. Four things that go toward answering this question, how can I know that I have been indwelled by God's Spirit, that I have been born again? Here's the first one. You are going to know that something important, something big has happened to you. I'm not saying it has to look any certain way, but I don't, believe it's impo- I don't believe it's possible to be indwelled by God's Spirit to be changed and not understand, wow, something big just happened to me. Now again, I'm not necessarily, uh, not necessarily saying it has to be a dramatic conversion experience. I, I would say it could even happen over time that, that this uh, takes place. But whether it is in an instance or over a period of time, you are eventually, if you've been indwelled by God's Spirit and born again, you're eventually going to have the experience of knowing something has happened to me, I am different. I didn't used to believe in God, and now I do. I used to think the Bible was full of fairy tales, and now I know it's the Word of God. I used to hate Christians, and now I love Christians. I used to hate singing songs in church, and now I love singing songs in church. I used to wouldn't serve anybody else, only myself, and now I find that I have the most joy when I'm serving other people. You are going to come to the realization that something has happened, something big has happened, and you are different. And when this happens, here's the second thing. You're going to have an experience of joy. Now, I struggled with this one because I know a lot of Christians. And I know we have some struggles with joy. I thought, do I really want to put this one in here? But I cannot escape that I believe this. If you have been indwelled by God's Spirit, 
if you have been born again, if you have been saved, somewhere along the line, there ought to be some joy over what's happened. There ought to be some joy. Now, the reason you have joy is because you come to a place of deep appreciation for this transaction that has occurred. You, you come to really appreciate God's goodness and His grace to you. You come to really believe that you're on your way to hell and now you're not. And that creates joy. Now, sometimes shortly after this, or maybe a while after, it's different for different people, but here's a third thing. The enemy will try to convince you that nothing really happened, that nothing really changed. So this is as certain as the other two things. The enemy will try to convince you that you are no different than you were. And you might lose a little bit of that initial joy. You might lose a little bit of that initial feeling of being changed. And that's when it is important that you continue to accept by faith what God has done for you, that you remember that God is true and the enemy is a liar. You believe what is true and you reject the lie. That's where you uh, latch on to verses like Romans 8.1 that tells us there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the enemy is going to try to convince you nothing changed, even though something did change. And finally... Again, there's more that could be said, but here's the final thing that I'm going to say about this today. The fourth thing, if you, and this is a tough one. There's another one I didn't, I didn't really want to put in here, but I don't know what else to do. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. If you've been indwelled by God's Spirit, it will result in obedience to God. It will. It will. Now, we don't arrive. Our sanctification is an ongoing process through our lives. It's not going to be completed until Christ returns. But those indwelled by the Spirit should see change in their lives. There should be increased and increasing obedience to God. If there's not, friends, we need to evaluate what's going on in our lives. Again, not, not perfection. You're going to fail. We're all going to fail. But there should be increasing obedience to God throughout our lives. So, Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law reveals God's will for humanity. It leads us to our uh, recognition of our need of Jesus. Our righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. It does so by being an inward righteousness of the heart instead of just outward conformity. That inward righteousness results in obedience to the moral law of God, which has not changed and will never change, and God empowers what he requires. He empowers us to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees by placing his law in our heart through the indwelling of his spirit, which happens when we come to faith and are born again. Let's stand. 